0: Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome to PM Mood. The no talking points, no bullshit podcast that takes you behind the curtain, off the red carpet, and to the front lines of progress with change makers and innovators that are doing the work to shift our culture and expand our social impact. This week, I'm so excited to welcome to PM Mood author, Catherine Stewart, who has written the book that scared me to death. In Catherine Stewart's book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, She talks about how America has been on this path of essentially annihilating the barriers between church and state and talks about terms like religious privilege and how religious freedom is really a cloak to provide one particular religion with the privilege that it wants. And the ability to use public funding in many ways to fund religious organizations, that are discriminating against whatever group they decide doesn't agree with their principles. Catherine, thank you so much for joining PM Mood. Danielle, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. So talk to me about the term power worshipers. What does that mean exactly?
1: Well, power worshipers, as you know, is the title of my book. And the main theme of the book is what pretends to be a religious movement is in fact a political movement, and I think nationalist religion is inherently democratic and tends toward authoritarianism. The people in this movement really adore people in power, at least when they feel like they are their people. So the book title is a bit of a double entendre.
0: For the longest time, I, you know, I, I tell people, I tell my listeners all the time, I am not a religious person. I do not subscribe to any one organized religion. I consider myself agnostic and a person that believes that there is a higher power, but I don't subscribe to any particular manual of operation, right, around my faith. Mm-hmm. What has made me so very terrified about the current movement that we see that has formed itself around Trump? is that they have made him, have turned him into some type of prophet. And you've even heard some Republican leaders refer to him as the chosen one. How is it that they have anointed Trump in this way, a man that is a grifter in many ways? How is it him that they've decided these white evangelical Christians to hang their hat on?
1: That's a great question. I think a lot of people still can't understand why people who purport to care about values could support a leader like Trump. Some people explain it in transactional terms. They think that he's going to appoint judges that are favorable to their concerns. To date, Trump has appointed over 192 judges to the federal courts. That's over 22% of the federal judiciary. Others think he's going to enact economic policies that are favorable to the pocketbooks of the plutocratic funders of the Christian nationalist movement. But what you said is really apt about them comparing him to a biblical ruler. We can't overlook something else that's really important. The support for Trump was not entirely transactional. And the tenacity of the movement's loyalty to Trump is really because there's something about his style of politics that speaks to this group, and that is a tribal politics. It's an authoritarian Mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, the movement is profoundly anti-democratic. They don't believe in pluralism or equality, so they don't just want a seat at the table, You know, in the loud form of American democracy, they really want to smash the table altogether and replace our constitutional democracy with something different. And if you're looking for someone who's really going to change the order, you don't want a nice guy. You want the tough guy who's going to fight for you and for your tribe.
0: You know, one of the pieces that you have written outside of your book you write for the New York Times, and I remember reading it at the end of last year, at the time, William Barr and his presence as Attorney General as we were moving through impeachment, the conversations that he was saying publicly made eyes pop open and led us all to believe what we had known from when he had put together a memo that no one asked for in order to audition for attorney general, which is that he believes that the executive should have expanded powers. Where he was when Obama was president, no one knows. But what was really interesting to me in your piece was talking about the emergence of William Barr and how we cannot be lacking in our conversation about His views on the Constitution without discussing his religious views. Can you speak to that and tell us a bit about that particular piece and and how William Barr is such a critical figure in this rise of religious nationalism?
1: The first point about Barr is it's an excellent illustration of how in the movement, denominations don't really matter as much as A lot of people think—many people characterize the movement as evangelical, but it actually encompasses a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant denominations, including sort of hyper-conservative Catholicism. So Barr is a Catholic, but what's important about him is not his religion, but the sort of political vision to which he is so committed. A second point to bring up is that he stands for a kind of extraordinary and extreme form of religion. And it brings up the point that the people in the movement, largely speaking, are extreme and not representative of their you know, denominations that they pretend to be promoting. The movement claims to be pursuing religious aims, but in fact, it's pursuing political aims. And I think another point about Bill Barr is it gives us a really good example of what's driving the movement overall, and that is a profound hostility and paranoia to secularism or to people who don't share that kind of extreme devotion to an extreme or hyper-conservative forms of religion, Barr has, in various speeches and writings, has definitively blamed non-believers for every problem in society. Mm -hmm. He says that, you know, secularists are out there ransacking everything that's holy and good, and he blames this on the, you know, rise of divorce and all these other problems, which. You know, most of us could look at rising rates of economic inequality and many other factors in some of these problems that we're
0: facing. He has said, I mean, I just want to point out in the piece that you co-authored in his speech at Notre Dame, he had said, we live in an increasingly militant secular age. And this is from a speech that you pulled out, I think it was in an article that he wrote in 1995, where he is talking about the wreckage of the family record levels of depression and mental illness, drug addiction, and subscribing that to a lost of strict interpretation of the Christian religion.
1: That's true. I mean, he not only blames people who are non-religious, he suggests that they're profoundly malevolent beings. And this is a central part of the movement today, which has no interest, of course, in the social science of poverty or the social science of changes to the family And I think it also speaks to kind of a profound hostility to various forms of sciences that the movement has long held.
0: You know, while PM Mood, you know, I am using this podcast as a way to talk with innovators, activists, authors, you know, about how they use their platform for the social good. And to me, your book, The Power Worshippers, is a social good because you're opening our eyes to the reality that we have slowly seen seep into our everyday lives. We have slowly seen over the past three and a half years how this administration has literally turned back the clock on rights for marginalized groups in favor of religious institutions. We are watching the rollback of a woman's right to choose, LGBTQ equality, A targeting of the muslim community and it's playing out right in front of us and no one is calling attention to the link between the religious zealots and the trump administration that's right
1: danielle i mean this is happening in large part out in the open this movement is using the tools of democracy to dismantle democracy it's not really that they're trying to deceive us. It's really that we're not listening. Mm. So that's why I wrote my book. It's a sort of deep dive into the inner workings and leading personalities of this movement that's using religion uh, and turning it into a tool for political power.
0: I mean, it really scares me that Mitch McConnell is rewriting the judicial map and is placing 40-year-old right-wing Judges on lifetime appointments. I am a black queer woman, child of immigrants. And the fact that we have oftentimes had to use the courts as a way to push society forward when there were not policies being created by our government to protect those most marginalized and vulnerable groups, we went to the courts because justice was supposed to be blind. Mitch McConnell has rewritten that map.
1: Yeah, you know, you're right about that, Danielle. The movement understands that a lot of its aims can be achieved in the courts, and I think that a lot of the strategic direction over the years has been provided by some of the legal advocacy groups of the religious right. I'm thinking about groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, which has an annual budget of over $50 million a year. I'm thinking about groups like the Federalist Society, which plays an outsized role in grooming and promoting judges for the federal courts and supreme courts. And you know, the reason why they are winning elections, even though I think people who you know, Republicans are a minority in this country in terms of sheer numbers, but they're disproportionately unified, organized, their leaders use data tools, media and messaging to sort of get people on the same page to turn out the vote. And they've also trained their rank and file to vote on the issue of judges. In researching the book, I attended all these right-wing conferences and strategy meetings and attended events that are in the forums that movement leaders share. And they'll often stand up and say, you know, this election is about judges, judges, judges. And I think people who are sort of liberal, left, progressive, whatever – don 't often think about that. We often are more focused on the personalities of mm-hmm. their candidates than is this someone you want to go to lunch with or have a beer with, or is this someone who you know has a detail of a health care plan that you care about and I think that we can start to win elections too if we start looking beyond these sort of low hanging fruit and start looking more on the issue of Okay, who are they going to appoint to the right. run the cabinet? What judges are they going to appoint? I mean, again, Trump has appointed now 192 judges to the federal courts. That's an unbelievable number. They stonewalled, as you know. They prevented Obama from filling a number of seats. And then as soon as Trump came in, they just sort of swooped in. And people weren't focused on that in 2016.
0: But Why? I just don't understand. Is it that Democrats believe in the goodness of all people and things will just work out well because we all subscribe to the same political and social norms? Is that it? Because we are realizing if there's nothing else that this administration has shown us is that political norms, essentially our entire democracy is basically a handshake, right? It's basically a handshake deal. We're thinking that things that we believe to be cemented in law, cemented in our Constitution, were actually just up for consideration.
1: Right. I know. I mean, I think in a country where 40 to 50 percent of the people don't vote, you don't need a majority to win. You just need a really committed minority in a system as politically fragmented as ours. Even small groups can dominate if they are united. So emphasizing unity is really, really important at this point.
0: I just don't see how we come together knowing what is being done to our constitution what is being done to our rights if this group right these power worshipers mm-hmm. they've been planning for this this moment for decades
1: that is absolutely right i mean i think the thing that they've been really successful in doing is taking a kind of long-term view of this part of the movement coalesced you know decades ago when a group of folks that called themselves the new right realized that you know the culture was going in a direction that they didn't like they were really animated one thing that really drew them together was what they saw as unfair tax treatment in their view of these racist academies which were all through the south they were really upset that the irs was starting to look at institutions like Bob Jones, all his uh, racist academies, and say, well, why are we giving you tax exemptions if you're uh, racially segregated? And they were calling into question the tax treatment of these uh, segregated academies. Mm-hmm. And the movement was really outraged by this. They were you know, committed to segregation, uh, many of them. Bob Jones was, as you know, an ardent segregationist. But they realized that this wasn't really an issue that was going to unite the movement. They needed something with a sort of a nicer, more acceptable public face. So, you know, they kind of went down the list and they considered a number of issues that they could use to unite their movement. One of the issues they considered was the women's rights movement, the ERA. But that was already not doing terribly well. And there were some other issues on the list. And they crossed them off. And finally, they realized uh, they settled on the issue of abortion. As an issue that could unite their movement. Now, remember, at this point, abortion was an issue that a lot of Republican Protestants supported. When it passed, Roe v. Wade was passed, the Southern Baptist Convention published an op ed in one of their publications hailing the decision. Billy Graham himself at the time said, I believe in Planned Parenthood. It was considered, you know, in his mind and, and those of many others, a Catholic issue, he said, I have to disagree with a Catholic stance. And Ronald Reagan signed the most liberal abortion bill into law, I believe it was in 1967. But over time, leaders of the movement, they were really extremist, and they really wanted to roll back a lot of the gains in civil rights, inequality. Remember, this is an anti-pluralistic movement that doesn't believe in equality in many aspects of civil rights law. And so over time, they realized that this was an issue that they could use to unite conservative Protestants and conservative Catholics, and bring in a number of what uh, one of their uh, members called our, our fringe friends.
0: You know, mm-hmm, they recognize mm-hmm. it
1: would get these, you know, really fringe extremists uh, excited. And so over time, they purged the Republican Party of pro-choice voices. And uh, finally, they created what is essentially, we see today, it's a kind of pro-life religion. And um, leaders of the movement are really not dumb. <laughs> I think people underestimate them a lot. They understand that, you know if you can get people to vote on one or two issues you can get their vote and so they work really hard to persuade the rank and file to all of these messaging strategies and media strategies and through pastors in particular they get people to think that you know you need to vote your biblical values and the number one biblical value is life you know or what they you know what they call life yeah, sort of anti-abortion mm-hmm. extremism exactly and so They get them to vote on those single issues, and they get their vote. And that's how they win.
0: You know, another piece that you wrote that was incredibly eye-opening, don't let Trump pay back evangelicals like this. Uh, New Mm -hmm. rules that his administration to help advance religious freedom. The reason why this piece in particular, in the ways that this administration wants to make it okay for organizations receiving taxpayer money to be exempt from anti-discrimination laws is really troubling to me as a black queer woman right yeah, of course. and there is a case right now that is going to be heard by the supreme court fulton v city of philadelphia where a catholic adoption agency does not want to allow same-sex couples to be able to adopt And so as part of their biblical stance, they don't believe in homosexuality, and so they are not going to allow those adoptions to take place through their agency. And they're being sued because they're not following the law of Philadelphia, which is not to discriminate. So now the Supreme Court is going to get ready to hear this case, and we already know who's on the Supreme Court. I don't even need to wait to figure out how this is going to be decided. I'm more concerned with the ramifications of what now happens to gay people across this country once this becomes precedent.
1: This kind of idea of religious liberty is antithetical to what religious liberty really is. It privileges certain religious views over others. So if your commitment to equality and equal treatment under the law is rooted in your own sincerely held Conscience and uh, religious beliefs, there's no liberty in this kind of religious liberty for you. It's basically the idea that conservative Christians should be permitted to discriminate against anyone whose characteristics or very being offends their so called sincerely held religious beliefs. This idea of religious liberty basically throws a civil rights law on its head, really does. True religious liberty is really a freedom of thought and of conscience and worship if you hold religion or a freedom from religion if you don't happen to have a particular religious creative freedom from having to fund other people's religion with your tax dollars. But in the hands of these religious nationalists, the term religious liberty has come to mean its opposite. Mm-hmm. It's really an Orwellian term that means religious privilege.
0: It really is Orwellian. I mean, my God.
1: And I think it's also, as you alluded to, Danielle, I think it's also an effort to obtain public money to subsidies and tax deductions and grants and these other schemes that they already have. Like religions already have all kinds of privileges. They're privileged in our tax code because they get special subsidies and things, other benefits that other non-religious nonprofits don't get. They already don't have to adhere to anti-discrimination law that other non-religious nonprofits have to adhere to. But they want to increase that flow of funds. And I think this is incredibly obvious in the field of public education. Let's just look at that example, where religiously motivated voucher advocates say that if they don't get public funding of religious schools, then that's a discrimination against their religion. But you know, it goes even further than that. Eight federal agencies have now proposed changes to rules that govern how they work with religious organizations. And they propose to allow these organizations to receive federal funds without themselves complying with anti discrimination law. And in some instances, those organizations may proselytize or require participation in religious services. So this is a clearly a bid for, you know, to turn on the tap of public money in their direction. You know, the idea that treating religious groups on the same basis when it comes to government funding, without having to give up their special privileges in other areas as a violation of their religious liberty, it's like a clear means of funding religion, of establishing religion. Let's not forget that the Establishment Clause, you know, which offers the best piece of real estate in our Constitution, it is the first clause of the First Amendment of our Constitution, and it is just antithetical to everything that we, you know, were intended to be as a country. You
0: know. What it is is that I I don't know how we move forward if Democrats and progressives in general are not as organized and as thoughtful and as strategic as the power worshipers. I don't know how we make the type of progress and change that is necessary to have a more inclusive democracy if when we have the reins of power, when we're holding them, that we're not using them to their fullest extent. That Obama didn't use to the extent that he should have rolled over Mitch McConnell and been able to appoint judges and take him to court to get what was done. I don't know how we continue to make incremental change when we get power, but they literally re- write the map when they do
1: I actually think that there's no cause for despair right now because I'm seeing those changes taking place already I mean I think we're seeing so much more activism today than we saw five or six years ago and certainly ten years ago when I started writing on these topics younger people in particular were pretty politically you know there were obviously many uh, exceptions But overall, there was much less awareness, much less activism than there is today. And look, you know, here's another issue. I think we can't begin to meet our challenges until people understand what we're actually facing. And I think that that awareness is growing. The awareness is growing that we're not just dealing with a culture war. We're dealing with a political war. We're actually dealing with a political movement. And that makes all this incredibly helpful. So, you know, while it's also true that a sector of the media has been, you know, enlisted in a propaganda campaign, working with far-right platforms and acting as mouthpieces for disinformation and hate. There are so many other journalists that are bringing, and, you know, folks who are running different media platforms like you, who are working hard now to bring the truth to light. And I think that, you know, there's work to be done, but we're free to do it. And, Religious nationalists have identified the tools of democracy that they need to use to dismantle democracy, but those tools are freely available to us to use in order to restore our democracy and to restore our country to the idea of a pluralistic country rooted in equality and constitutional principles as it was intended.
0: I would be remiss if I did not bring up, Catherine, the current global pandemic that we are dealing with with the coronavirus and i bring this up because the actions by this president or i should say inaction by this president to me also seem to be rooted in some type of religious zealot thinking where this is some type of rapture that is coming to clear the field And we should do nothing to stop it. We should do nothing to prevent it. This is God's will. We had Republicans getting on the news, either moving from one place of this being a hoax to another place being, well, you know, those that are vulnerable, those that are old, they need to sacrifice for the rest of us, sacrifice their lives, literally.
1: Yeah, so much for the right to life, so much for the sort of idea that this is a pro-life movement. But I think you're right. There are a number of ways in which this movement bears some responsibility for the current incompetence in our national response to the pandemic. I can think of like three ways. So let's start first with the fact that Trump is beholden to a movement that has for decades derided science Mm -hmm. um, and promoted kind of anti-science culture, derided critical thinking, rejecting expertise. And that's obviously contributed to our inability to address the crisis in an evidence-based Fashion, and if you look at some of the misinformation promoted by Trump and his cronies, this is already rife in conservative, hyper conservative religious communities that we're all in for Trump. Secondly, I think this is a really important thing to note we have a poorly developed collective infrastructure, mm-hmm. and that is a consequence of decades of right wing economic policy. And this movement of power worshipers, the Christian nationalist movement, is implicated in that too. They've completely allied themselves for a very long time with the libertarian, pro corporate, economic, conservative wing of the Republican Party. So they've supported politicians and policies that have led to the privatization of the healthcare system and undermined government everywhere. They're constantly demonizing government and uh, seeking to tear down the social safety net, even going so far to call it unbiblical. So that's an enormous reason why we're unprepared for this crisis. And then, you know, we've also seen in the Trump years a breakdown of formal expertise. And instead, we see that he's putting people into positions of a huge amount of power based on their political loyalty and their willingness to conform to this extreme religious ideology. So that's, you know, you've got folks up there who really are there not because they're experts in their field, but because they're guided by religious ideology in pursuit of power, and, and they're willing to sort of praise the president for you know, I don't know, hiccuping and burping or whatever, and they have very little interest in serving the wider public interest. So I think these, all of these factors really contribute to the mismanagement of this crisis. I mean, you've got folks like um, People in the scientific community who've been talking about this coming crisis for a really long time. Why didn't folks in our federal government start planning for possible equipment shortages and the creation of masks and other protective equipment and the kind of infrastructure we need to treat the sick? Why weren't they planning for that, you know, months ago when other folks were sounding the
0: alarm? Because they were too busy calling it a hoax. That's why. Mm, Exactly. They were too busy wasting time and costing Americans their lives.
1: That's true. I mean, the Republican Party, in part because of this sort of influence of the Christian nationalist movement, now takes an all-spin, all-politics view of the world. Everything is spun for political gain. So as soon as there's any bad news that might have an impact on our financial future, you had all these folks like Jerry Falwell Jr. coming up and calling this a hoax and kind of trying to downplay the consequences of the movement. And there's a person, I don't even remember her name, Trish Regan, that was it, she was on Fox News, mm-hmm. and she, you know, cast this as an attack on Trump. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, the sad thing about this is, this is a pandemic, this is like a real thing. It's going to kill people. It's already killing people all over the world. You know, usually the consequences of this type of misinformation and political spin don't show up for a while, but in the case of a global pandemic, you can see the consequences. They are life or death, and they're happening right now.
0: And they're happening right now. Catherine Stewart, your book, The Power Worshippers, Inside of the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, is a must read.
1: Thank the, you so much, Danielle.
0: Absolutely. The question that I always end with is, how do you get in the PM mood to change the world?
1: Get in the mood to change the world? Yes. Well, how do you get you- there? Well, you give me hope. Your listeners give me hope. I mean, there are a lot of people who really care about our democracy, who really want to turn back this sort of tide of religious nationalism and affirm uh, equality for people of all faiths and no faith, for people of different walks of life, and uh, people are becoming more active than ever before. And that is what gives me hope.
0: Writers like you who I know put themselves potentially in danger because the people that you write about that you investigate in my opinion are dangerous right they oh, yeah. have these are people that think that it's okay to assault pregnant women seeking an abortion these are people that you know really don't care about all life they only care about one type of life and so they don't mind taking another life So I thank you so much for the work that you do for your investigation into what I think is a critical issue that we should be paying attention to. The rise of the religious right, the rise of religious nationalism is a problem, is a threat to everyone. And the sooner that we all wake up and pay attention to it, the better off we are. So Catherine, thank you so much for your work, for your continued writing, the book, folks, is the power worshipers inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism. You can get it everywhere. Thank you, Catherine. Oh, thank you so much, Danielle. Thanks for listening to PM Mood. As always, you can hear episodes every week for free. And my daily political podcast, Woke AF Daily, is on Patreon for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash Woke AF. That's $5 a month for five shows a week. So check it out if you're in the mood for more of me, Danielle Moody. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at D2Cents, D E E T W O C E N T S. And as always, stay in the PM mood to change the world. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring.